Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Welcome to Center Street Church. Those of you here at Central Campus, also those of you who are uh, meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, down in Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and also in the uh, Crowfoot Theaters uh, in Northwest Calgary. And of course, we do welcome those of you who are joining us online. This weekend, we've heard some powerful baptism testimonies of God's activity, God's life-changing activity in the lives of people. And I trust you've been as blessed as much as I have been. God is at work in our city and our church. He's changing lives, and we give him all the glory. Charles Swindoll tells the story of a handful of dedicated Christians who years ago were meeting secretly in a house in the former Soviet Union, now referred to as Russia, uh, during the years when the communist government uh, had banned church meetings. As this small group of dedicated Christians met covertly, suddenly the door burst open And standing there were two Soviet soldiers with automatic weapons. And they shouted out, we order you to leave immediately. Anybody who stays and does not renounce Christ will be shot. A few of the group left immediately, but most stayed. Moments later, the soldiers shut the door But then they put their guns down and they said, brothers and sisters, we too are Christians. We dare not worship with anyone who is not an authentic believer. May we join you. Now, no doubt being threatened in this manner would be terrifying, but it would quickly clarify, would it not, the depth of our relationship with Jesus Christ and what our convictions are about him. While we may never be forced under the threat of death to reveal what Jesus means to us, the reality is what we believe about Jesus will not only significantly impact how we live this life, but also where we will spend the next. And so let me ask you, what do you believe about Jesus? Is he a mythical character or an actual, real, historical person? Is he God? Or is he someone that God created? Is he one of many ways to God? Or is he Lord and the only way to God, as he said he was? We're beginning a new series today on the book of Colossians. Some 2,000 years ago, the faith of the believers in the church at Colossae was being challenged by a group of people who had infiltrated the church and held to the heretical teaching which later developed in what we now refer to as Gnosticism, which is Greek for knowledge. Essentially, they believed that Jesus was a good guy, but that he wasn't enough, that he lacked the authority and the power to be their savior, or to meet their needs. The way of true salvation, they believed, came through Jesus plus special knowledge, plus special experiences, plus the performance of special rituals, plus rigorous self-discipline. Well, the Apostle Paul heard about this heretical teaching through Epaphras, the man who likely started the church at Colossae. Epaphras and his friend Philemon were from Colossae, a small community in what is now the country of Turkey. Both of them came to faith in Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, which when he was in the community of Ephesus, which is about 100 miles from Colossae. Well, it appears that Epaphras visited Paul while he was a prisoner in Rome. And he informed him not only of the good things that were happening 
at the church, but also of those who are now spreading heresy among the church. Well, this is what inspired the Apostle Paul to write this letter to the church at Colossae. And I love his approach. He doesn't take a defensive stance. You know, he doesn't argue point by point against Gnostic heresy. Rather, he just simply lifts up Jesus. He describes who Jesus is and leaves it at that. His overarching theme is because Jesus is Lord, he is more than enough. In other words, all you need is rooted and found in Jesus Christ. Well, after his opening greeting and prayer for the Christians at Colossae, which we're going to look at later in this series, Paul focuses on Jesus, giving clear instructions who Jesus is and why he is worthy of our worship and total allegiance. And so with that in mind, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians and then to stand with me and join me in reading the scripture we're going to be examining today. And I realize we have multiple versions, so it's probably better if you just follow along on the screen. The sun is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you for inspiring Paul to write these words about your son, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to fully understand, or at least more fully understand, who Jesus is. And Lord, help us to, to, to not just understand this cognitively, Lord, but Lord, that this would begin to penetrate uh, who we are that we would realize in a new way the implications of what it means for Jesus to be alive, for Jesus to be the God of all creation. We pray all this in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. So look at verse 15. Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. He doesn't have a material body. He cannot be seen with the human eye. But you see, out of love for us, God became visible. God became a man. Christ was God made visible. Now, it's very important we understand what the word image is referring to here. In Genesis 1.27, it says, God created mankind in his own image. We as humans are created in God's image, which means we're like God in certain ways. We're like God in personality, 
in the sense that we can think, we can reason, at least most of us can. Um, <laughs> we can feel, we have emotions, we can make decisions, but we are not God in our essential nature. In other words, we're not all-powerful, all-knowing, or everywhere present. Christ, on the other hand, possesses these attributes. When Paul says Christ is the image of the invisible God, he's saying Christ is the invisible God made visible. He's the human visible image of the invisible God. Unlike we humans, who only reflect a part of God's image, Christ is the true, perfect, absolute, accurate image of the invisible God because he is God in his essential nature. He's God made flesh, 100% God, 100% human. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2 for a minute. Look at verse 6. Paul gives a description of Jesus there, and this is what he says. I'm going to just look at the very first sentence. Jesus, who being in very nature, God. Notice he says here that Jesus' very nature is God. He wasn't created by God, as some would have you believe. There are people there are people of other faiths who would have us believe that Jesus is a created being. Some of them come to your door and my door. And they will argue from the scriptures that Jesus is a created being. But that's not the case. He is God who became a man who became a visible human image of the invisible God. Look again at what Paul writes in Philippians 2.6 about Jesus. Again, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Some translations say he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, to be hung on to selfishly. Gave it up for a time. Verse 7. Rather he, Jesus, made himself nothing. Notice no one made him nothing. He made himself nothing. He made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus, God the Son, out of love for us, and our redemption, on his own initiative, chose to become a man. And while he was on this planet, he chose not to exercise his divine power and privileges. But instead, he chose to live in humble dependence on his heavenly Father for everything. For his teaching for his miracles. Which, of course, when you read it in the Gospels, you get the impression that Jesus couldn't be God because he was depending on his Father for everything. But that is a decision he made when he made himself nothing and became a servant. And he chose to live in humble dependence on his Heavenly Father, even as he now calls on us to live in humble dependence on our Heavenly Father for everything. But even though Jesus lived fully as a man in this life, and he chose to live in total dependence on his Heavenly Father, in no way was he ever inferior to the Father or the Spirit. No, he was and continues to be fully God. When Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he's not saying that Jesus is a copy of the real thing. You know, the way that there are copies of famous paintings like Rembrandt's paintings. He's not saying that Jesus is someone God created that is a lower level 
reproduction of himself, someone who's sort of like God or someone who's sort of like the real thing. No, he's saying Jesus is God. He is the original who became visible, a man for us to see and identify with. Look what Paul writes in Colossians 2.9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Again, he's saying Jesus, God the Son, is the visible bodily human image of the invisible God. If you want to see what God looks like in human form, then look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to see God's compassion, God's forgiveness, God's patience, God's grace, God's truth, God's way, look at the life of Jesus as it's laid out in the Scriptures. Paul goes on to write, the Son is the image of the invisible God. And then he says this, the firstborn over all creation. Now again, there are people from other faiths who believe the word firstborn means that Christ is a created being. So let me give you several reasons why that viewpoint doesn't align with Scripture. First of all, the word firstborn doesn't refer to birth order. As if God created Jesus first and then everything else. No, the word refers to a person's status in the family. Now, people in that day, they would have understood this. You see, in our day, typically parents will pass on their estate or part of their estate equally to their children. Now, it doesn't always work out that way, but generally that's sort of the way it works these days. However, you see, in Old Testament culture, the firstborn was the one who would inherit the entire estate, all of his father's wealth. But with that, and really the reason for that, because you have to remember it's an agrarian economy, the reason for that is he was given the responsibility for the family. He was looked to for leadership in the event that his father departed. And he was given the authority of the father toward that end. Now, typically in the Old Testament, this special status was given to the oldest or the firstborn. However, on occasion, a father would confer this special status on a child who was not his firstborn as David did, for example, with Solomon. But there are many other examples that we can see in the Old Testament where that happened, which validates the idea that the way that the word firstborn is used here is not about birth order. It's about a special status conferred on a child by the father. And so when Paul says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he isn't saying Jesus was the first to be created, but that Jesus was given special status, authority, honor by God. It means Jesus is exalted above all others. He's supreme over all creation. In Psalm 89, verse 27, God's talking about the Messiah, the coming Messiah. And he says this, I will appoint him. Now we're talking about Jesus, the Messiah here. I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. God appointed him to the exalted position, the position of master of all. Secondly, Christ is not a created being because he is creator of all. Look at verse 16 of Colossians 1. This is what Paul writes. For in him all things were created. All things. Please 
Take note of that. Circle that. It's okay to do that in your Bible, by the way. All things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and powers or rulers or authorities, which really refers to the angelic realm. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This passage tells us that Jesus participated with God in creating all things. Things temporal and eternal, things seen and unseen. All things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus, which means he is the Lord and center of the universe. Now, I want to be very clear that I personally believe that all of, and there's even evidence of that in the scriptures, even in the creation account. I believe that, that when God created, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were involved in the creative act. And so just keep that in mind. When Paul says all things were created by Jesus, we know that Jesus was not a created being because obviously it makes no sense for Jesus to have created himself. Thirdly, we know that Jesus is not a created being because numerous scriptures teach that he is God and Lord. Now, you know, I don't fully understand the Trinity. I don't fully understand how God can be one being, one being in nature, and yet be three distinct persons who are called God, who are all equally powerful, equally all-knowing, and equally everywhere present. Neither do I fully understand how Jesus can be God and then take on human form for 33 years, put aside his divine power and live in total dependence on his heavenly father. But you see, I'm okay with that because it reminds me that he's God and I'm not. I don't need to understand everything completely to believe. But what I do understand is that even though the word Trinity is never used in the Bible, it's taught in the Scripture. It shows up again and again. There is a Father in the Scriptures who is called God. There is a Son in the Scriptures who is called God. There is a Spirit in the Scriptures who is called God. For example, in Genesis 1.26, we read, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. God doesn't say here, Let me make mankind in my image. Singular. No, he says, Let us, plural. Let us man make mankind in our image clearly referring to the Godhead, to the Trinity. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He, so now suddenly we have a person who was with God and who is God, through him, all things were made. We've heard that before in Colossians, right? Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Nothing. Nothing. The word became flesh. Oh, that's a big hint who, that, who the word is. Down, this is down in verse 14, by the way. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, of course, this is referring to Jesus, who is clearly referred to here as God, the one who made all things. Over in Revelation 4.11, we have a picture of worship going on in heaven 
And the living creatures, they say this, to the one who created all things. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have being. In Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is referred to as the creator of all things. And here in Revelation 4, the creator of all things is referred to as Lord and God. And as I said before, I have no problem believing that this is referring to the Father, Son, and Spirit. But I'm just making the point that Jesus is part of the Godhead. Look at Hebrews 1. It's a powerful chapter. The author's making a, a, a case, a powerful case that Jesus is far superior to the angels. Because again, that was one of the issues that Gnosticism was dwelling on. And in verse 6, God the Father calls on the angels to worship the Son. Something God insists is to be only reserved for himself. Only he's to be worshipped. No other gods before him. And yet the Father tells the angels to worship the Son. But then look down at verse 8. God says this about the Son. Your throne... Oh, God, will last forever and ever. Now, you see, this is just a sample of many biblical passages that could be given to affirm the deity of Christ and also the reality and the truth of the Trinity. Now, Jesus himself claimed to be God. We know in John 10, 30, he said, I and the Father are one. In John 5.18, we read how the religious leaders of that day, they were so enraged with Jesus, they wanted to kill him. And the reason was, is because Jesus, and I quote scripture here, was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They knew he was referring to himself as being equal to God, and that enraged them. They saw it as blasphemy worthy of the death penalty. When his disciple Thomas finally, after some time, had opportunity to, to see the resurrected Christ and to touch him, the Bible tells us that upon doing so, he fell to his knees and he said, my Lord and my God. Now what's really interesting about all that is Jesus did say something to Thomas right after he made that declaration. The interesting thing is that he didn't say, Thomas, I'm not God. Don't refer to me that way. That's blasphemy. No. He didn't say that because he knew he is God and was worry, uh, worthy of Thomas's act of worship. Jesus is God and Lord of the universe because he created all things because he is called God and Lord in Scripture numerous times, and because he himself referred to himself as God or equal to God. But you know, in addition to all of this evidence, perhaps the most heartbreaking thing for me, associated with rejecting Jesus as God and Lord, is that if he is just a created being like you and me, and maybe some kind of prophet, but by and large just a human being like you and me, then he doesn't have the power to save us. His blood does not have the power to cleanse us from sin. His act on the cross, his death on the cross, 
was wasted. He is not the way to eternal life. He is not the way to the Father. He has no power to heal the brokenness of our planet. And frankly, the story, the message of the Bible, and the reason that Christ came and died and rose again makes no sense if that is true. Paul says he is before all things. And then notice he says, and in him all things hold together. Now apparently scientists are aware that there's some kind of force holding the universe together. Preventing the universe from exploding or falling apart. I try to look it up a little bit on the internet. Way too complex to even touch. You know, they've got their explanations, but I... You know, I much prefer Paul's explanation. <laughs> he just says Jesus is holding it all together. Hey, that's good enough for me. <laughs> but, you know, I think this is referring more than just to, to Jesus, in, you know, ensuring the planets stay in their orbits and all that kind of stuff. As important as that is. But you know, when couples put their trust in Him, when they humble themselves, and when they seek His face, and seek to align their lives with Him, He holds their marriage together. He prevents it from falling apart. He gets involved. He's that unseen third person in that marriage. When families lean in on him and they trust him and they humble themselves before him, he keeps things from totally unraveling. Look at verse 18. Paul writes, And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is Lord over the universe and he is Lord over the church. The church is not a building. The church is people who know and trust Jesus and are a friend of Jesus. Jesus is our source. He's our leader. In verse, 20, verse uh, 22, Paul writes that God was so pleased to reconcile those of us who were alienated or far from God to himself that through the death and the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. Jesus died in our place and through his blood made a way for us to become a friend of God again. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 18, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. He rose from the dead. If he didn't, he wouldn't have any supremacy at all. But the fact that he rose from the dead proves that he is God, that he is who he said he was, and that he is worthy of our worship and our obedience. When Paul said he is the firstborn from among the dead, he wasn't saying that Jesus was the first historically to be raised from the dead. Because we know others were raised from the dead before Christ, including Lazarus. I mean, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But you see, Lazarus died again. He lived however many years, and then he died again. These people were raised temporarily. But Jesus was the first to rise permanently. Never to die again. And because he lives, all those of us who've put our faith in him will rise again as he did and live eternally with him in glory. And the same power that raised him from the grave is available to each of us to help us to live in freedom and in victory. 
And that's why Jesus has supremacy in all things, including the church. He's alive. I mean, folks, he is Lord and King. He's worthy of our utmost admiration. And he is the head of the church, including Center Street Church. Folks, this is not Henry Shore's church. This is not any pastor's church. This is not your church. The truth is, we are the church, and we belong to Jesus Christ, and he's the head of this church, and we're accountable to him. He's the truth. He's the way to a full and abundant life in this world. He's the way to life eternally with God. When you put your trust in Christ, he's going to invade your life, not in a bad way, in a really good way. Because he's going to become one with you, and you're going to become like him. In the same way that your body gets its instructions from your brain in your head, so we are to receive our marching orders from our spiritual head, Jesus and as you surrender your life to him and listen to his instructions and carry out the assignments that he gives you, he's going to increasingly form his character within you. You're going to start exuding the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness of Jesus. And he's going to give you the power that you need to do the things he's calling you to be and to do. So let me wrap up by giving what we have learned today, by, by having us give some thought about what this means for us today. First of all, trust Jesus with your life. Given that Jesus is God, given that Jesus is the creator of the universe, Given that at this very moment, he is actually holding the entire universe together, it seems to me we can trust him with our life, don't you think? We know that he's a good God. We know that he has our best interests at heart in all things. We know that he is alive, that he's God, creator of the universe how can we not trust him completely and surrender our lives to him? You see, this is fundamentally a decision we have to make. I mean, do we believe him? Do we trust him or not? Whatever problem you may be facing, remember that our all-powerful God is more than able to accomplish what concerns you today. Are you trusting him with it? Are you bringing it to him daily in prayer? Even when you don't see any results, do you have the confidence that he is at work, that he's doing things, seeing things that you don't see, that you're not aware of, but he is more concerned about some of those things than you are. That person that you're so concerned about. A person that you don't know how to help anymore. Do you realize that Jesus loves that person more than you do? And do you realize that he is able to do so much more than you can? Do you believe that? Do you believe it enough to open up your hands and say, I give this person to you? I'm going to trust you with their health or their life situation, whatever.
Trust Jesus with all of your life. Secondly, love Jesus with all of your heart. You know, if he left the splendor of heaven to become a man, and and we can't even, we we have no concept of what that involved. For me, it's like, um, it would be like me becoming a worm. He left the splendor of heaven, became a man for us, To make a way for our sins to be paid for. To make a way for us to become a friend of God again. And he did all of that out of love for us and his passionate desire to have a vibrant relationship with us. You know, knowing that. How can we not want to know him better? How can we not be drawn more to him? How can we give our highest affection to the lesser things, the created temporary things of this life, like possessions and position and earthly achievement and even to relationships? How can we possibly turn our back on Jesus and say, I don't want to trust you. I don't want to follow you. I don't really want to spend time knowing you. Because you see, there's this temporary thing here that I like better. You know, if, um, I don't know, whoever your hero is, you know, it might be a billionaire, it might be, you know, a prime minister, it might be a president, or it might be someone that's even closer in your life. Whoever your hero is, if that person were to say to you, you know, I want to spend as much time as we can together. Wouldn't that just blow you away? Wouldn't you see that as an incredible honor? And yet the God of the universe gives that kind of an invitation to each one of us. He loves you as if you were the only person on this planet. He wants to know you that way. How can we not reach back to him? As I've said before, anything you put ahead of Jesus, anything, your family, your marriage, your dating relationship, your vocation, your time, your money, your pleasure, whatever you put ahead of Jesus will be the source of your sleepless nights. It will be the source of your greatest frustration, worry, and disappointment in life. May whatever will be most important to you moments after you die, think about that, moments after you die, May that be most important to you now. And surely that is Jesus. Trust Jesus with your life. Love Jesus with all of your heart. And finally, follow Jesus without compromise. Paul closes off verse 23, challenging us to continue in our faith, to be firm and established in our convictions to not move away from the hope and the truth of the gospel which he spelled out in this letter. And he ends this little section that we've looked at today by saying, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now, you need to understand that that is something that, John, that Paul would not have instinctively said. Paul had a strong type A personality. He liked to be in control. He liked things going his way. He was a proud man. But you see, knowing Christ changed him from the inside out. He says, because Jesus is Lord, he's my Lord. Because he's Lord, I'm his servant. Nothing else makes sense. Where he leads, I will follow. I can't be any other way because he's the Lord of my life. And so following Jesus means saying, Lord, here are all my status symbols. I give them to you. I hold them with an open hand. Lord, here are my, here's my obsession 
with needing to be admired. Here's my obsession with needing to be up on someone else, to be seen as the best. Here's my obsession with needing to be in control. My need to always be seen as competent and put together in the eyes of others. My need to always have everything go my way. I give it to you. I give to you my fears. I give to you my insecurities. Here's my prideful heart. Here's my rebellious heart. I lay it on the altar for you. Because you're Lord. Bob Russell tells the story of one of his church leaders. The guy's name is John. Who was asked by the president of his company, a large company, to do something that he felt was wrong. After some thought, he built up the courage to approach his boss and to tell him that he couldn't do it. And the president said, but John, I need you to do this. And John responded, I'm sorry, sir, I just can't do it. It goes against my personal convictions. And the president said, well, I guess we're not number one with you anymore, are we, John? And Bob Russell says that John, you need to understand that John's a very quiet and a humble person. And so John very quietly and very humbly said to his boss, Sir, to be honest with you, my job has never been number one. In fact, sir, it's not even been number two. Jesus is my number one. My family is my number two. Well, needless to say, it didn't take too long that it led to John resigning from the company with no regrets because his convictions and his walk with God mattered more to him. And Russell says that was a number of years ago and John found another job, a better job. But the courage that he demonstrated that day was based on a conviction that money wasn't the Lord of his life that his job wasn't the Lord of his life, that his boss wasn't the Lord of his life, that status and security was not the Lord of his life. Jesus was the Lord of his life. You know, friends, Jesus is so, so awesome. He's so amazing. He's so great. And I just want to say, for those of us who are Christ followers here today, may we celebrate who he is. When we come together for worship, let's lift him high. Let's jump a little higher than we do at hockey games, okay? Because, oh, he is so worthy. And I plead with us, May nothing steal our affections away from him because he is Lord and King. And if you're not a Christ follower here today, I would say to you humbly and I would say to you respectfully that there is no middle ground with Jesus. You either believe him and jump all in or you reject him. If you don't know him, oh man, do I challenge you that you not dismiss him before you have earnestly and sincerely investigated who he claimed to be. Because as I said at the start of this message, what you decide about Jesus will not only impact every aspect of your life on this planet, but it's going to impact the trajectory of your eternity. And folks, that matters big time. Would you please stand with me for closing prayer? Let's open our hands to the Lord. Just take a moment.
Let's ask the Lord those two questions. This is decision time. We'll have wasted our time together if this just becomes a a great thought and you leave and nothing ever changes. God's trying to get your attention. And so the question is, Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what am I going to do about it? What's one step I'm going to take? What's, What's an attitude I have to change? What's an area of studies I have to embrace? What's the next step? Lord Jesus, we just think of Philippians 2 again. It says, you being in very nature God, you did not consider your status with God something to be hung on to selfishly. You you gave it up out of love for us. You became nothing. You became a servant. You took on human flesh. You, the creator of the universe, the God of the universe, became, as it were, a worm for us we can't thank you enough help us all to to grasp in a more full measure the awesomeness of your power and also your love for us your interest in us desire to be our friend Help us not to take it for granted. Help us not, Lord, to keep you at a safe, comfortable distance and miss out all that you have for us, the faith adventures you have in store for us. Oh, God, there is so much to this life, this Christian life you've called us to, that you want for us, Lord, and we're, many of us, Lord, are missing it because we're just playing it safe and we're just keeping you at a nice, comfortable distance. Oh, you are not our enemy. You are our friend. May we embrace it and realize it, oh, God. Pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.